read Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, and then we'll be skipping forward into chapter 9. Thanks, Catherine. Okay. So this is quite a long reading, so I will do my best. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he had... uh, For Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Amadetha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now we go to chapter 9, verse 18. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. 
Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Amadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called, called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 province, provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish, establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree, decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all Jews. Uh, friends, if you have a Bible uh, with you, you might like to have that open up at the book of Esther, at Esther chapter 8, and uh, you should also have a sermon outline. Uh, it's uh, uh, either here in church or if you're on the PMPC Facebook page, uh, you can obtain that. But why don't we pray and then we'll come to think about God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word that speaks so volubly of your work in our world uh, to achieve your plan and your purpose. Father, we pray now that by your spirit that uh, your word would be opened up to us and uh, would be applied to our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, we've been having some painting done at our house. And one day, I stepped outside our front door to find a large ladder was blocking my way. So what did I do? Well, like any rational person, I walked under it. But not everyone would do that, would they? Because uh, there are some people who say that, uh, well, that's 
you, you shouldn't be walking under a ladder because that's bad luck. And to be fair, you know, if there happened to be a if I happened to knock it over and the painter was up on the on the top rung and doing his job, it might be considered bad luck for him. But uh, in our culture, uh, there is a, still a residual, at least, of superstition. You might have, <clears throat> and uh, uh, of some people, some things which people say are, uh, are bad luck, and other things which people say are good luck, uh, like for example, finding a four-leaf clover. And then there are those who read their stars in the newspaper uh, in order to get guidance as to how they should be uh, behaving on that day, as if uh, somehow our world and our lives are determined by impersonal cosmic forces that are at work, which we need to be aware of and we need to be guided by. Now, often, of course, people add a spiritual dimension to the concept of luck. Uh, with man-made gods and man-made idols and man-made patron saints who they pray to uh, and uh, who they placate uh, in the vain hope that uh, by doing so, they might be able to avoid the bad and attract the good. I even read that there is an actual patron saint of lottery numbers. <clears throat> Pray to that person and you're guaranteed to win. And then there are some people who reckon that there are no cosmic forces at all <clears throat> uh, which control our destiny. And life is just a matter of random chance uh, where there is no higher plan, where there is no higher goal than to simply try to survive as best as we can before we die and return to dust. Now today, as I mentioned, we come to the end of the book of Esther uh, from chapter 8 to chapter 10. And it's been a fascinating book, hasn't it? Uh, it truly is a fascinating story. Uh, it's a book which has transported us back to the uh, splendour of the royal court of ancient Persia uh, with its opulence, with its decadence and with its hatred, uh, particularly the hatred of one particular man towards God's people, the Jews. And his name uh, was Haman. Uh, he was second in power only to the king, King Xerxes, and Haman was seen, had a, a sort of a, at least a vague belief uh, in a cosmic force which controlled the world, controlled events. Because in his hatred for the Jews, he had devised a plan that on one particular day, that anyone who shared his hatred, anyone throughout the Persian Empire, which was the known world at that time, Anyone who shared his hatred for the Jews could kill Jews with impunity, with state sanction. He wanted every Jew in the world to be killed. We have, we have names for that kind of thing, don't we? You know, Holocaust is one, genocide, state-sanctioned genocide. But the question we need to ask is how did he choose the day? 
Did he uh, consult the leaders from all of the local communities around the Persian Empire to find out from them what would be a day that would be most practical, most suitable to do the job? No, in chapter 3, uh, with a bunch of royal officials in the capital city of Susa, uh, they cast the lot. That, that is that they, they cast a special stone in order to discover what would be their lucky day. Now, in the Persian language, the, the word for lot uh, is the word per. And what was the result of this? Well, an order was sent uh, throughout the empire that on the 13th day of the 12th month uh, that uh, people were ordered to destroy, to kill and to annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, men and women. This is a story of Shakespearean drama. In fact, uh, there's a saying which comes from Hamlet, isn't there, that, that, uh, which speaks about someone being hoisted on his own petard, uh, which uh, in plain English means it refers to someone being blown up by the small bomb that they set for someone else, which as we saw last week, is pretty much what happened to Haman. Uh, for the Jew he hated most was a man by the name of Mordecai, uh, who he did not know was in fact the cousin of the queen, Queen Esther. Uh, Haman had planned to execute Mordecai on a 25 metre high gallows that he had uh, made specifically for that particular job. And yet, when the king learnt that it was in fact his wives' people, uh, the Jews, whom Haman had planned to kill, we saw that it was Haman whose neck hung from those gallows. So much for Haman's lucky day. But the death of Haman didn't solve the problem. For the edict to kill the Jews had already been delivered um, by a horseback uh, throughout the empire. In a sense, the horse had already bolted on this one. And worse than that, in Persia, any decree which was sealed with the king's royal uh, signet ring could not be revoked, not even by the king himself. And so something else had to be done. In chapter 8, Queen Esther goes to the king. Have a look at this, chapter 8, verse 5. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, she's so diplomatic, isn't she? Let an order be written overruling the dispatches which Haman, son of Amadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows, now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. 
Now, friends, Esther is a book of what I call ironic reversals. In fact, in the verses just before what I've just read, in verses 1 to 4, we see two ironies. Uh, First of all, uh, um, Haman's estate had been given by the king to Esther and she appointed Mordecai to be the manager over that estate. And so Mordecai is now managing everything that had belonged to Haman. And secondly, the, the king had given uh, Mordecai the signet ring which he had taken back from Haman. So the bottom line here is that now Mordecai has replaced Haman as being the second most important person in the Persian Empire. And yet he cannot simply cancel Haman's genocide decree for it had been sealed with the king's signet ring and that's a problem so what does he do well he issues another decree giving Jews royal sanction to defend themselves if and when they are attacked and in another ironic reversal in chapter 8 verses 9 through to 13 He actually takes the the wording of Haman's original decree for the Jews to be destroyed, killed and annihilated and he just changes a few words in that decree so that the second decree becomes a decree for the Jews to defend themselves against any armed force who would seek to destroy, kill and annihilate them. And unlike Haman's decree, which was issued in, uh, in all of the languages, all of the scripts and all of the languages of the Persian Empire except one, Mordecai's decree was also published in Hebrew so that the Jews could see it and read it for themselves. So then in chapter 8, verse 14, the couriers riding the royal horses raced out Spurred on by the king's command, royal racing horses. This is the high-speed internet of the ancient world to get the message out quickly, as quickly as they could before Haman's so-called lucky day. But the question is this. How would an edict permitting Jews to defend themselves actually make a difference? I mean, wouldn't they defend themselves anyway? That's what we might expect. Well, think about it this way. Imagine that you are a, a career public servant, a career bureaucrat, or a career politician anywhere in the Persian Empire, and you've already received Haman's edict to allow the slaughter of the Jews that are in your jurisdiction, but now Haman's dead. And in an ironic reversal, your new boss is actually a Jew. As you discover also is your queen. I I mean, in chapter 8, verse 15, uh, Mordecai, when he came out of the king's palace, was, 
was dressed in royal robes and he was wearing a, a, a crown of gold on his head. And unlike Haman, who just brought distress and misery and bewilderment to people, well, Mordecai, when he came out dressed like that, it was a cause of celebration and joy. He's now second in charge. And so if, so if you're a local official, what are your career prospects looking like now? I mean, if you just stand back and watch your Jewish community be slaughtered, be butchered, well, how's that going to go down back at head office in Susa? In chapter 9, verse 2, the author tells us, quote, the tables are now turned. People are now fearing the Jews. Uh, pick it up at chapter 9, verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all of the nobles of the provinces, these are the bureaucrats, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators, what did they do? They actually helped the Jews. Why? Because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The local pagan authorities were now helping the Jews because they didn't want to upset their boss, Mordecai. But it wasn't just people who had careers to hold on to. It was ordinary people as well. Uh, in fact, back in chapter 8, verse 17, we read that many Gentiles, that is, many people of other nationalities, actually decided to become Jews because we're told fear of the Jews had seized them. They decided to become Jews, which I take it would have involved some circumcision taking place. But the question is why? Why would they become Jews? What was this fear that they had? Well, perhaps they may have thought that uh, with the uh, change of uh, the power structure back in Susa, in the, in the capital city, in the palace, that Perhaps these Jews may do more than just defend themselves and that their lives might be at risk. Or perhaps they began to join the dots of all of these ironic reversals and conclude that maybe there is an unseen hand at work. But rather than the cosmic forces of Haman's superstition, they may have actually thought, well, the God of the Jews is orchestrating all of this. Friends, in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a light to the nations. And we don't read of many Gentiles in the Old Testament actually becoming Jews, do we? You know, there's, uh, there's some, like Rahab, I think, uh, became a, a, a Jew. Uh, but here we see that there's a large number of people a large number of Gentiles who became Jews. By the time of the New Testament, it was not uncommon for Jews, for Gentiles, 
to have become Jews. It's mentioned several times in the Gospels. And in fact, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when people from all over the Mediterranean world had converged on Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, we're told that there were Jews and also converts to Judaism who came from all parts of the world and who got to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on that day from the lips of Peter. And here in Esther is another one of those ironic reversals. For what had been the goal of Haman? The annihilation of every single Jew. What had been the result of his efforts? More people became Jews. <laughs> That's the result. Now, some people feel a bit uncomfortable with the book of Esther. <clears throat> and uh, one of the reasons for that, or the reason for that, is that in chapter 9, there is a lot of blood which is shed by the Jews. Uh, you see, it turns out that uh, despite the change in the power structure back in Susa, in the capital city, in the palace, uh, that there were still others who, whose hatred for God's people was so great that on the day that was selected by casting the purr, they did actually attack the Jews. Um, chapter 9, verse 5, we see the result of that. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in verse 16, meanwhile the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them but did not lay a hand on the plunder. That's a lot of people, 75,000. Uh, but we're talking about a huge empire here. And the question is, well, you know, did the Jews just go and embark on a murderous rampage? No, it doesn't seem so. Um, this was self-defence, uh, that it was those who hated them, those who were, wanted them dead. Uh, these were the ones who were killed. Uh, did they take any profit from this? Well, no, they didn't. Although the edict that Mordecai had sent out, using similar words to the words that Haman had sent out, actually allowed them to take plunder, they didn't do that. They weren't interested in profit. They were just interested in protect. This was self-defence. In fact, the, the, that point is stressed because three times in chapter 9, verse 10, in chapter 9, verse 15, and in chapter 9, verse 16, three times it is stressed that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Unlike their ancestor, King Saul, who took plunder from Haman's ancestor, King Agag, when God had commanded him not to do so. They didn't take plunder. Now, some time ago, Cassie and I were travelling overseas with our family and we got to talk to a local man on one occasion, who was not a Christian. And I mentioned to him a particular custom that I heard about in that region. And he told me that not everyone 
does the thing which I just described uh, because they consider it to be bad luck. I thought it was interesting because I, I then told him, well, actually, I, I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in good luck. I don't believe in bad luck. But what I do believe is in a good and a loving God who created the world and a God who has made certain promises and who orchestrates the events of life and of history so as to fulfil the promises that he has made. And that uh, you know, sort of merged into a conversation about Jesus and the joy of being saved from judgment uh, through him. Salvation is something to be joyful about, isn't it? Do you rejoice in the salvation that you have through the Lord Jesus? Friends, we see some of that rejoicing. In fact, we see a foretaste, a foretaste of the joy that is ours uh, in the celebration of the Jews. And if you pick it up at uh, chapter 9, verse 20, uh, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving food to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, on February the 25th and the 26th of next year, uh, Jews around the world celebrate an annual festival uh, which is called Purim. Uh, and if we have a look in chapter 9, verse 26, we see the origins of that. In chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Therefore, these days, that is the days of celebration, were called Purim. Why were they called Purim? From the word pure. Why would they do that? Uh, why would they name their celebration of salvation after the pur, after the lot? The lot which the pagan Haman had cast. Well, I think actually it's not a bad symbol of what the whole of the book of Esther is all about. Because why did Haman cast the lot? Why did he cast the pur? Because he believed in an unseen hand at work in the world. And in another ironic reversal, turns out that he was right. Is absolutely correct. There is an unseen hand in the world, just not the one he was thinking about. You see, Haman's plan, if it had come to fruition, would have wiped out all of the descendants of Abraham. Not just in far-flung parts of the Persian Empire, but in Judea, in Jerusalem, all Jews were under threat. Had his plan come to fruition, all of Abraham's descendants would have been wiped out, annihilated. The descendants of Abraham, from whom God had promised that a saviour would be born, 
That wasn't going to happen, was it? For this world is not controlled by impersonal cosmic forces and neither is life just a matter of throwing the dice and hoping for the best, more good luck than bad luck. No, there is certainty in this world. God is in control. And God does have a plan, which we see in the greatest ironic reversal of all time, and that is the cross of Jesus. For by his death and resurrection, Satan is doomed. And all who trust in Jesus gain the victory. Have you trusted in Jesus? We don't celebrate Purim, do we? Some of, it, is it, some of you may never have heard of Purim. Quite possible. 25th and 26th of, what is it, February next year. We don't celebrate Purim. For the salvation events which are described in Esther are just a pointer. A pointer to the event which ultimately turns grieving into gladness. And that event is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. With whom, along with believers from every language and every nation, if we trust in Christ, we will one day share in the great heavenly banquet, the eternal celebration of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is in control of this world. We thank you that you are a God who is powerful and that you are faithful to the promises that you have given. We thank you, Father, that uh, uh, even in the sinful events of life, that uh, you use these events to bring about your good plan and your good purpose. We thank you that Christ has indeed defeated death, that he has indeed risen from the grave, and that uh, that is the guarantee that we have, that we live in a world which is purposeful, which has a point of its creation and a point in the recreation, as one day we who trust in Jesus will be gathered around the throne, your throne, forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.